I'm Michael Schulder, and on this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. And she said, no, I know who you are, and if you will tell me where you're going to eat dinner tonight, I will be able to make some money. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, I'm a waitress, and the restaurant that I work in has a huge picture of you with Wanted. My guest, Ruth Reichel, was about to start her job as the New York Times restaurant critic, when she discovered that a number of restaurants had a kind of bounty on her. She was fuming and decided to show up at the lavish French restaurant Le Cirque in disguise. Every time Reichel showed up in disguise, the service got worse, never dodging the chance to humiliate her and making it clear that she did not belong. But the day she showed up as herself, the switch flipped. And The owner spots me, and he leads me forward and says, the king of Spain is waiting in the bar, but your table is ready. When she finally sat down to write the review, Reichel had a big decision to make. How transparent should she be? I had long felt that the way restaurant reviews were written, that there was was a lie there. Keep listening to hear about Reichel's explosive first review for The Times and why it's been her mission to make the art of cooking accessible to everybody. As a food critic for the Los Angeles Times and then the New York Times, Reichel was known to make or break a restaurant with her sharp attention to detail. She is the former editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine and has written five critically acclaimed memoirs, including her latest, My Kitchen Year, 136 Recipes That Saved My Life. I spoke with Reichel at the Nantucket Book Festival. Well, well, Ruth, uh, my first exposure to you was in the New York Times, and when I uh, heard that I was going to be having a conversation with you, I remembered something that I often think of, which turns out to have been your first review in the New York Times. I didn't realize that until recently. And it was your first restaurant review of Le Cirque, and it was devastating because you went in there and in fact there were, t- tell us the title of that because I'm sure you remember it very well. It's I'm sure you do. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, there were two sections, dinner as the unknown diner and dinner as a most favored patron. And so you visited the restaurant five times. The first three times they didn't know who you were and then they discovered your identity, despite your disguise, and it became a different restaurant. Tell us about it. So, well, there, there were two times when they made me, and the first time, they didn't really... Excuse me, they made me. It they sounds like me. this is a mafia story. <laughs> <laughs> so the first time I went, and it was... I called... I, got, I was on a plane, and I... The woman next to me on the plane said, um, I know who you are. And I w- at the time, I was the restaurant critic of the LA Times, and I was go- flying back and forth because I was about to start New York. And I said, oh, don't be ridiculous. You don't know who I am. And she said, no, I know who you are. And if you will tell me where you're going to eat dinner tonight, I will be able to make some money. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, I'm a waitress, and the restaurant that I work in has a huge picture of you with wanted written across the bottom. And um, my boss is willing to pay $1,000 to anybody who spots you in the restaurant. 
And I sat there on the plane fuming, and I finally decided, if they know who I am, I'm going to be someone else. And I called my mother's best friend, was an acting coach, and I called her and said, Claudia, where do I go to buy a wig? And she said, no, 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 no. Um, you're going to be the restaurant critic of the New York Times. You can't just put on a wig and funny glasses. If you're going to do this, do it. And she just threw it at me. She said, who are you going to be? And I just pulled a name out of the hat. I said, you know, Molly Hollis. And she said, well, who is Molly? And so she made me, before she would let me go to a restaurant in disguise, she made me, I, I knew everything about Molly. Um, what her kids did, uh, where she lived, her husband's name. And we went and we bought clothes from, and I put on like many layers of clothes so I was much bigger. And she got a professional makeup person to come and show me how to do this. So before I was done, I was, you know, at the time I was um, 50 and, you know, she made me look much older than I was and um, like a sort of frumpy, older Midwestern woman. And for the first review, Claudia came with me and we'd made a reservation and I said, you know, Molly Hollis when I walked in and the maitre d' sort of looked and said, there is no Molly Hollis on. And I went right there, that reservation, that's us. And they said, well, your table's not ready, go sit in the... And they just treated us like dirt. Um, and, and the crowning moment for me was the Le Cirque wine list was huge. And they gave me the wine list and literally one minute later, the maitre d' came and snatched it away from me and said, I need that wine list and gave it to a man three tables down. <laughs> I was furious. So, for, so I went many times in disguise and it never got better. They always just humiliated me and it was clear they didn't want this frumpy older woman there. And for one review, I called my nephew and said, I'm going to go as myself, but I want you to make the reservation. But I know he'll rec I know they've got that picture of me, and I know that they'll recognize me. And Johnny calls me and says, well, I could only get a 945 reservation. <laughs> and I said, okay, let's go at 8 and see what happens. So we walk in, there are all these people grumbling, you know, oh, I've been waiting for my reservation for hours, when's my table ready? And the owner spots me and he parts this group of people and he <laughs> takes my hand and he leads me forward and says, the king of Spain is waiting in the bar, but your table is ready. <laughs> and they proceed to take us to a four-top. They're just two of us. And they, you know, can we make a meal for you? And they dance around, you know, champagne, caviar, white truffles, black truffles. It's spectacular. And I said to Johnny, oh, yeah, the king of Spain is waiting in the bar. And Johnny turns around and he goes, that is the king of Spain. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I wrote those two experiences on another occasion when they made me. I was there with Eric Asimov, um, and they recognized Eric, not me. This was when I was in disguise. And he was the science writer of the New York Times? He Is was writing, writer? no, he was the food editor at the time. Oh, the time. food editor, I'm He's sorry. now the wine editor, but at the time he was the food editor, and they took away, we had a raspberry tart, 
And the minute they recognized Eric, they took the tart away and brought a new one with bigger raspberries on it. <laughs> and so this is your, your, so now you're about to write your first review and you've got to decide you know, how transparent should I be here because there was a lot riding on this and I remember you said your boss, this was his favorite I restaurant. Mean, I couldn't understand why my editors were so nervous. I mean, they were just, and I, I saw that it was going up the line to, you know, every, to people above me and I finally said to my editor, what's going on? And he said, this is Punch Salzberger's favorite restaurant. <laughs> and he, you know, he owned the New York Times. And... Um, I was terrified. I was so frightened that I literally, the night before the review appeared, I was going to another restaurant and the taxi I was in started going down the street where Le Cirque was. And I said, no, 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 don't, don't go. <laughs> Take another route. I mean, and I literally didn't sleep. And in the middle of the night, I was so frightened that I actually persuaded myself I had never been to the restaurant, <laughs> that I had made everything up. I mean, I was sure that I was going to get fired. I mean, I've never been that scared again. But, but, but you wrote the review unvarnished. I did. And I remembered that King of Spain line to just a few days ago. I said, you know, I, right before we spoke on the phone, I said, was she taking poetic license there? And I Googled King of Spain, Le Cirque, and sure enough, it came up that he was quite a frequent visitor there. He was a frequent visitor. But, but this brings up something. So you went out, it was unvarnished, and again, we gave, the, we gave the title, The Dinner is the Unknown Diner versus Dinner is a Most Favored Patron. And anybody who read that said, oh my God, she just exposed such hypocrisy. And outside, as the line was forming to get in here, I started asking people online, like, any, any, what are you curious about? Do you know Ruth Reichel's work? And there were people who have really read a lot of your books. Five memoirs, by the way. I can't imagine. Five memoirs. You, you have a lot to write about. And, and, and I asked somebody, I said, well, you know, what do you think? And one woman, Nancy from Massachusetts. Who, where's Nancy? There she is. Nancy from Massachusetts. She said to me, you know what? This woman has courage. And that... That review was just one of the things that proved it. Let me ask you something, because courage is not the lack of fear. You were afraid. I was very afraid. Where did you get your courage from? It, I, I had long felt that the way restaurant reviews were written, that there, 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 was, there was a lie there, and that it was important to expose that lie and to say, you know, Restaurant critics pretend to tell you what's going to happen to you. But, you know, they, they were all known, and there was this little cabal of people. And it just struck me as wrong. And, I mean, I, I was brought up in New York City, and I was brought up with a sense of social justice. And food may not seem like a big thing to people. I mean, it's not racism. But we all eat every day. And I honestly believe that there is something magical about restaurants. And what it is is that um, ordinary people can go out. And for just a couple hours in their lives, they can experience what it's like to live a life of privilege. And I think that that's an important thing. 
for all of us to get a kind of dignity in our lives that we don't always have. For this to be taken away is wrong. And um, it just, it felt like an important thing for me to say to the readers of the New York Times, look, they, the critics have always been on the side of the restaurants, but you're paying my salary. I'm writing for you, I'm not writing for the restaurants. And it felt important to me to do that at last. And so you mentioned the word social justice, and I think back to your memoir that you wrote about your mother and how she and women of that time were really seriously deprived of social justice and how that shaped you and how her reaction to it shaped you. Tell, tell us about that. So um, I, I got an award, and um, for this award, I stood up, and it happened to me. I was giving this speech at the Waldorf Astoria, um, and it, was, it would have been my mother's 100th birthday had she been alive. And I got up and said, you know, I have to tell you, today would be mom's 100th birthday, and I wake up every morning grateful that I'm not her. And there was this huge intake of breath. I mean, the entire 1,500 people went, <gasps> and then I said, you know, I, my mother's generation, they were the first generation of women who voted. Um, my mother was born in 1908, and she and all of her friends were smart, educated, and completely frustrated. They were not allowed to work. I mean, it was um, embarrassing. If you were a working woman, it sort of meant that your husband couldn't support you. And um, I feel like I stand on the shoulders of my mother and so many women of her generation who really made it their business to see that their daughters had the opportunity that they didn't. And I was raised to work. I never thought that some man was going to support me. And I'm grateful to my mother because she raised me that way. I mean, she really wanted, she felt like her life was missing something important. And that important thing was the ability to do meaningful work. And it was missing something until you discovered when you started sifting through her papers to write that memoir, you found one of the last things, the last little notes she had ever written because she didn't keep a diary. And it, gave, it made you so happy to see this because at the age of 80, she finally discovered how to live a meaningful life for herself. So just for those who think it's too late, it's never too late, tell us about that. Well, I mean, my father died, my mother was bipolar, and um, I mean, seriously, I mean, classic textbook, um, real crazy manias, and then going to bed for months on end. And um, after my father died, she went to bed and pretty much gave up on living, and then she, had the opportunity to, a friend of hers needed help. And um, she sort of got out of bed and decided to care for this woman. And she realized that the secret to life was helping other people. And it changed her. And she took students, I mean, she lived in an apartment in Greenwich Village, and she took students in. And it 
yeah, as she said, it was what we were, what we were made for, and it completely transformed her life. And it was a great lesson to me that um, living a selfish life doesn't get you anywhere. There's, there's another thing that occurred to me. I mean, you have beautiful descriptions of that Sunday morning tradition you had with your father. And just tell us a little bit about your father and who really maybe is the connection be between you and writing in many ways because of his profession and, and also that Sunday morning tradition. My, my dad was a book designer and loved books and actually left, he, he was born in Berlin and he, he left Germany because his family, his very wealthy family didn't think being a book designer was good enough. So he came to America specifically to follow his dream of designing books. Um, so I have to stop you there. Your mother did not follow her dream. You, that was one example, the negative example. You did not want to emulate that. Your father did follow his dream. It must have had a big impact. It did. And um, I, what I learned from my father was that, um, you know, he, no matter how crazy things got in our house, dad would go to work. And he loved his work. And it, it fed and nurtured him. And I always thought, you know, do I want to be my miserable mother who's home with too much energy and nothing to do with it? Or my father who goes off to the office every day and works with type and, you know, and he read every book he designed and there were thousands and thousands of them. And, you know, he, he just loved what he did. But we also had um, a ritual where we would, um, I grew up in Greenwich Village and we would go out and, I mean, we would do two things, actually. One was Dad loved old bookstores. So we would go to old bookstores and then we would go to the butcher and we would sort of wander New York. And my father didn't cook much. He, he cooked a couple of things. And one of them, well, he, he made scrambled eggs. He was very proud of his scrambled eggs. Um, and he could grill a steak. And you would go out in search of? And we would go out in search of like really good meat. And we would go to, um, there's this wonderful, it's still there, there's this little butcher shop where they would actually, they still do, they will bring out half a lamb and you know, ask you, what, do you want the right leg or the left? <laughs> and um, and um, they will cut the steak for you right there. And, Again, it was this notion of, I mean, the butcher loved what he did. It was about being around artisans who really are proud of their work. So Ruth Reichel's dad didn't cook much, but there was certainly bonding between the two of them over food. I asked her whether her mother's cooking influenced her. I mean, the, the truth is that mostly my mother really was the world's worst cook. Um, the first chapter in Tender at the Bone is my mother inviting um, many people to a party and putting 26 of them in the hospital with food poisoning. <laughs> um, and literally my earliest memory is of you know, sitting in the kitchen in my high chair and watching my mother go through the refrigerator, scraping the blue stuff off the top and saying, little mold never hurt anyone. Um, and I learned at a very young age to taste. I mean, I, my friends laugh at me because I, I, the first taste of everything I do is sort of, 
And I'm like, is this going to kill me? <laughs> and I started doing that very young and pushed my mother away from the stove, really in self-preservation. I mean, um, the cover of Tender at the Bone is a picture of me cooking at seven. And you can see from my expression, this isn't a party trick. I mean, I'm cooking. And um, I have always loved food. I mean, I, and I think it's, um, you know, very much a function of it was my thing. Um, it was sort of how I survived my mother's mental illness. Um, I was really fortunate in having many incredible mentors who taught me how to cook, um, not my mother, but um, people who were interested in my interest in food. I have to stop you there because you said it's how you survived your mother's mental illness. In a sense, it gave you resilience. And then here we are all these years later and you have this relatively new book about your time as editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine. You spent a decade there, and then the magazine, which you treasured, folded, and you retreated to your kitchen. And what was the subtitle of your book? Uh, 136 Recipes That Saved My Life. So cooking has literally saved your life. It has literally saved my life over and over and, and over And how again. can it save our lives? What, what, is, what is it about cooking that we average people can incorporate into our lives that can maybe make us more resilient. What my kitchen year is ultimately about is I found in that year after, I mean, this devastating loss, um, you know, I mean, it wasn't just that we lost the magazine, but I was, you know, this magazine was almost 70 years old, closed on my watch, and 65 people lost their jobs, and I felt like I had just let them all down. So I was really depressed about it. And what I rediscovered in the kitchen is at any point in any day, there are thousands of things to feel depressed about. I mean, wars. I mean, there, there are terrible things happening in the world. On the other hand, we are alive, and I think it behooves us as human beings to find moments of grace, to find little things to be grateful for. And there are, if uh, you are alive and walking around, there are so many wonderful things that happen every day. And for me, so many of those wonderful things happen in the kitchen. And so. When I'm in the kitchen, I really find myself slowing down and you know, making a pie, feeling the way the dough comes together. I mean, there's a kind of magic in that. Watching um, bread dough rise and the, the scent of the yeast. Um, when you peel a peach, there's a color that's right under the peach peel that you don't see when you bite into it. You don't see when you cut into it. But when you peel it, it's like there's this little sunset in your hands. And for me, that's really, I mean, I love being able to feed people and that sort of act of, here, let me make you happy with something that I've cooked. But also just paying attention to the sound and sight and feel of what goes on in the kitchen grounds me and reminds me to 
Just be grateful to be here. And this might seem like a non sequitur, but the way you describe your appreciation for those little details leads me to ask you about how you're, you have a master's in art history? I do, it? I do. The education in art history that you got, which is all about noticing little details. How, how has that impacted the way you approach food? Um, I think very, I mean, I thought that I was gonna end up being um, a curator or an art historian, and one of the things that happened to me was I kept saying to my professors, well, how do we know that this is really a great artist? I mean, it's just, is it just a great artist because we say? I mean, if, if you study the history of art, you really sort of see, you know, Caravaggio was despised in his own lifetime, and then suddenly, you know, 100 years later, everybody thinks he's the greatest thing. And you, you see these waves come and go. And I could never quite be okay with the idea of connoisseurship. Um, there's something so elitist in it. And what I love about food is that it's something that everybody makes choices. They, they make aesthetic decisions about food constantly. And that it seemed to me that, I mean, I, I, I did a lot of work with children in museums, and it seemed to me that um, if you could harness that, if you could say to people, why does this cherry taste better than that cherry? Everybody can give you an answer to that. I mean, they, even if they're not aware of it, but that it, it seemed to me that food was a fantastic way to teach people to pay attention to quality and that it was something that we could understand, that you know, there really is you don't have to teach someone that a ripe peach tastes better than an unripe peach. I mean, everybody instantly knows, oh my God, this peach is amazing. And um, I was more comfortable with that than I was with the elitism of art connoisseurship. From this rich life that you have led, and again, mothering has been a very important part of it, and you've been able to balance work and, and parenthood, what is the one advice you can give to one piece of advice you can give to parents out there, either mothering in the kitchen or out of the kitchen? I remember that one scene of your son at what four years old making matzah brai. Matzah brai, yes. yes, which he called mana. Mata. <laughs> but but is there something you can tell us parents that you've learned either through mistakes or through your parents' uh, uh, mistakes or or great things that they've done? This, I mean, this this is this is what I said to every young editor who came to me and said that she was pregnant and she was taking a leave and I would always say, are you going to come back to work after the baby is born? And they all said yes and I said, and now you will understand what true guilt is. No matter what you do, you're going to feel like you should, if you're at work, you're going to feel like you should be at home. And if you're at home, you're going to feel like you should be at work and that's just part of the way it is in this country which does not adequately support working women. But, um, and your children will survive. <laughs> you told me that one of your, one of your regrets is, uh, had something to do with the fact that you, you didn't quite make, and I think you have, ultimately, but you know, the, the art of cooking was intimidating to people in the home. 
and you, you wish you could go back and maybe make people a little less intimidated. How, how can we be less intimidated? Well, you know, I mean, I really feel like we in the media, and, and I, feel guilt, I do feel guilty about this. I mean, there was a point where we made everybody think that they should be chefs. And that, you know, if you can't, if you can't cook on a chef level, don't even bother cooking, which is ridiculous. I mean, I, I truly believe that, you know, we are human animals, we are cooking animals. I mean, the difference between us and other animals is we cook, they don't. And there's a really good argument that cooking is what made us human. Um, but um, I believe that, you know, cooking is our most, most natural activity and that we should give ourselves permission to make mistakes. I mean, I believe that, for me, cooking is about the journey, not the end. And the food media has made it way too much about the result, you know. And, you know, if you, if you make a bad meal, so what? There's another meal in a few hours. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we've made, it, we've made cooking into a test. Um, and it should really be about the joy of being in the kitchen and putting something together and um, playing around. Joy of Cooking at Home, with the restaurant critic, Ruth Reichel. You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you subscribe for free on iTunes, or you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer, and then every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter. My thanks to Danielle Fox, who edited this episode. I'm Michael Schulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations. <laughs>